Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello everyone, welcome to Battle Walks. Thank you for joining us for the third part in our quite epic trek across the Owen Stanley's on the Kokoda track. Uh, there's been a great response to the first two episodes. If you haven't listened to those, please go back and do so uh, because it's been a pretty special journey so far and I'm sure today it will continue to be a very special journey. Joining me is my very special guest host. It's David Howell. Dave, welcome back, back on Kokoda. Great to be back, Matt. It's been exciting so far, mate. I've really enjoyed it this uh, this up to this point and we've had some excellent feedback. A lot of people have emailed in and sent messages on Twitter and Facebook just saying that it's uh, it's been quite a special journey. They've enjoyed uh, exploring a part of the world that I think a lot of people wouldn't <laughs> see themselves actually walking. So it's been great, mate. So thank you so much for your input. It's uh, the final part of the journey today, uh, the final part of the story. It is. And uh, look, it has been good sitting here and uh, reminiscing, I guess, placing myself back on the Kokoda track and walking up and down the hills, but doing it from the comfort of my armchair. When are you actually heading back to the track, mate? I'll be back in July. Um, we've got a, um, a trip running uh, in conjunction with the 39th Battalion Association. And, um, yeah, we'll be taking some um, uh, school kids who won, won a scholarship through the association and uh, exploring um, for them the first overseas trip, but in the first battlefield they've been to. So it's exciting. Um, yeah, fantastic. This is the 80th anniversary year. It, it's always great when you get over there with school groups you get a whole new perspective because i think i always think that young people cop a bit too much of a bagging these days from us older generations we you know but uh, when it comes to look i'm sure there are young people that that uh, need to uh, have a think about how they're living their lives but i've got to say from the perspective of the ones that i take to battlefields from the ones that i see participating in anzac day services and particularly these ones that win scholarships and and um, you know places on history tours. They're uh, they're they're pretty impressive, and I think the uh, the future is in safe hands. Indeed, and when when you get um, young people who are enthusiastic, they uh, want to learn. Uh, they're coming across these subjects, you know, usually for the first time. Certainly, usually for the first time in the sense that they want to have more of an in depth knowledge. And I think that uh, spurs me on as well because if people are eager and keen to learn more then um, you have to up your game and, uh, and uh, you know, answer some of the difficult questions. And sometimes there's questions that I perhaps may not know the answer for. So it challenges me as it challenges them. So I really get a kick out of it. And we've got to remember as well, those of us in our 40s, we, don't, we no longer represent the veterans that we're talking about, the, the, the men, you know, who, the men and women who went off and fought. Uh, typically much younger than uh, than I am today, uh, and so it's it's always good to get a perspective from a younger generation about what uh, what these sorts of things mean to them. Indeed. Well, let's um carry on, mate. Third part, third and final part of our Kokoda trek. 
It's been grueling. There's been laughter. There's been tears. We've uh, we've hung in there together. Today, uh, the last bit, the last bit of the track. So why don't you give us an overview of, of what we're going to cover on the, on the track today? Well, today we are just over the halfway mark and we're going to cover uh, the next major battlefield going on um, the direction north-south, which is um, Brigade Hill. And then, of course, we're going to make our way along to uh, Irabaya Ridge, which is the furthest extent of the Japanese advance. Then we have Imita Ridge, We've still got one final hill to climb, which is Oa's Corner, where we will be picked up on the bus to take us back to the hotel, but of course, making a very, very important uh, stop on the way home, so to speak, which is, of course, Pamana War Cemetery, the last resting place of many of these people that we've spoken about who um, died died during the Kokoda campaign. Well, it's going to be a, a wonderful adventure, mate. It's going to be, I think it's going to be, uh, you know, confronting in some places. But uh, we, we finished up, we finished up in a fogey last time, I believe. We camped for the night. We'd enjoyed a hearty home-cooked meal around the campfire. No doubt a sing-along with David. With, I don't know if you got your guitar out, but uh, we, uh, <laughs> we've, we've had an enjoyable evening in a fogey. And where to now? Where to now? Well, we are in the shadow at a fogey. We've uh, seen the sign that has the halfway mark. So that kind of gives uh, people, um, it's could be a double-edged sword, gives you relief that, oh, we've made it halfway. But of course, you've still got, still got what you've just walked in front of you. Um, in uh, the overshadowing as, I, overshadowing, as I should say, is, of course, Brigade Hill. So we have slept with this um, dominating feature uh, behind us that we are setting off. And it's always good to um, to camp the night before, before going up to um, um, up to a Brigade Hill because I hate to do it the other way where you have lunch and you've got a full stomach and you're just about to climb up this massive feature. And also from the uh, northern side of it, it's probably not as gruelling as if you were going the other direction. So that's where we are. We're at a fogey. We've had a good sleep. We've got our packs on and we're about to walk off uh, into the jungle again and to climb this uh, mission ridge up to Brigade Hill. So tell us about this ground. What happened here in 1942? So... Uh, this is the, uh, I guess, for the Australian withdrawal. It's the second uh, major battle, um, Isarava being being the first that involves the 21st Brigade. And Brigade Hill is basically named after, um, it's where the headquarters of Brigadier Arnold Potts, who was the commander of the 21st Brigade, who was commanding the 2nd 14th and the 2nd 16th, and also the 2nd 27th Battalions. And um, originally... Um, it was Mission Hill is another word for it. Uh, there was a seven-day Adventist mission hut uh, was the only distinguishing feature on the hill. So the ridge going up to it, um, you'll read in history books or some people will, like myself would refer to it as the hill itself you're climbing, um, is Mission Mission Ridge. And um, Brigadier Potts, as I said, his brigade headquarters was on top um, of the saddle. And so that became known as Brigade Hill. So, um, you know, in terms of the history, this is a place where um, Brigadier Potts made was ordered, actually. He was ordered by um, his commander, which was General Rao, to stop retreating and make a stand against the Japanese. By now, the Japanese had um, obviously cleared the Australians from their stand at Isarava, had chased them back through uh, Myola, uh, the, the dry lake beds of Myola 1 and Myola 2, which were very important. These are the places that uh, Brigadier Potts had wanted his supplies um, to be re- ready for his... Um, his uh, battle at, at Isarava, where he relieved um, the 30th Brigade guys of the 39th and, the, uh, of course, the New South Welsh 53rd Battalion. So they've lost all that. They are with wounded. They are, uh, you know, low on supplies. They've Anything they, the Australians couldn't carry was either buried, sabotaged, etc., to deny uh, the Japanese getting those, um, those supplies. And he's made it to this high ground. Of course, remember, uh, infantry soldiers, you know, got to dominate the high ground, and this is exactly the place uh, where they can do it. And Brigadier Brigadier Potts now has something um, that he hadn't had before. Uh, He's had um, one of his battalions, that being the South Australians, the 2nd 27th Battalion, released from Port Moresby. They'd previously been left out of battle. They were held in reserve back in Port Moresby because there was fear of the Japanese breaking through at Milne Bay. Uh, 
as we as we know from history, Milne Bay didn't go well for the Japanese. So once that fear is now alleviated because the Japanese didn't break through, Brigadier Potts is able to have this fresh battalion, if you will, come in. Unfortunately, he's not at his full brigade strength because, of course, the 2nd 14th and the 2nd 16th had that bloody battle at Isarava and their numbers aren't what they should be. Um, they are uh, in a state of, um, you know, uh, they've got lots of wounded, they've got fatigue, men have been out here now fighting in the jungles, uh, low on supplies, having to fight this fighting withdrawal. And although he's got this new battalion, it's still not um, it's still not in the Australians' favour, if you will. So what are we seeing today, David, as we, uh, as we approach this imposing hill? So the first thing we do is we walk out of the village of Afogi. There's a, there's a, a clear um, a clearing, if you will, which is a square of the village, and that sort of tapers down. And you, you, it's a very nice little um, village in the sense that uh, you've got where the track goes now. You've got this wonderful airstrip, which is the Afogi airstrip, uh, and it sort of just disappears off into the mountains. And then, of course, you've got this imposing mission, mission ridge that we're about to climb. The place that we actually climb here is not the exact same spot where we start off as the um, as what would have been in 1942, but it's relatively close. In fact, it parallels Mission Ridge. And during the war, when um, Brigadier Potts had the 2nd 27th guys released from um, Moresby, when they came to occupy those positions, of course, Brigadier Potts um, thought, you know, they're the, they're the fresh guys. They were going to put up the front, and they were put up in the front, but, but initially they were too far down off the hill. In fact, I've been to the spot where we've found uh, plenty of uh, relics, if you will, left over from the second 20s, so like unfired 303 ammunition there um, where they dug in, and they were dug in down the bottom of the hill, and um, later on Brigadier Potts realised this is not the case, and he ordered their commander to bring them further back up, up onto Brigade Hill proper, and we're going to probably do about an hour and a half, maybe an hour, if, depending on how fit we're feeling, and we're going to cross over this spot where the 2nd 27th were dug in. How much of a connection are you feeling, David, with 1942 as you walk through this this part of the track? The great thing about this part of the track is you are have open spaces with vistas that you can see, and when you're climbing up uh, towards Brigade Hill and you look back, you're looking down at where a fogey, um, where a fogey south, the larger fogey is now, and you're seeing the airstrip, and you're seeing um, looking up towards Kargi, the village of Kargi up on the hill, uh, you can actually see, you can put it in perspective, and this is the spot where, if you turn, uh, 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 you know, a page in a history book that talks about this, you'll almost certainly read about the Japanese lantern parade, and I mentioned it briefly in in the last podcast, and this is where the Australians could actually see the Japanese who had now were reorganising themselves and preparing for their assault on Brigade Hill. And the Lantern Parade, they literally had lanterns and the Australians could see them coming down the side of the of the mountain. They couldn't engage them. They didn't really have their weapon systems, weren't able to go out to that range, but they could see them because, again, there's this open vista. So if you're there now, here in the present, you are climbing up and you're looking down over to where... Um, the Japanese were coming down. And I just always say to people, imagine being one of those soldiers, especially the fresh 2nd 27th guys who had been in garrison duty at um, at Port Moresby. They hadn't been involved in the fighting uh, in, in, in New Guinea at this stage. And they've come, they've dug themselves in. And in on the horizon, if you will, you can they could see this lantern parade zigzagging down, uh, knowing that these guys are coming to force you off your position. Well, that's their aim. So real big strong connection in this in this part of the trek and do people do, do the young people on the track and the you know the people you're leading do they feel that connection with the history or is it all a bit difficult for them to imagine uh, i think by this stage um it, it becomes a bit more clearer because they get an understanding um in, well in the sense of something that is really real and tangible and that is that they've just walked over half the kokoda track now they understand that it is tough uh, and it is challenging. And as the history and the stories, especially around the campfire, has been developed, uh, people are starting now to get an understanding that the Australian soldier, um, you know, we shouldn't just get into camp at night and kick your boots off and have popcorn and, and, and a nice 
big fire to get warm. You had to do stuff that infantry soldiers would do, dig in, um, you know, do your stand twos, do all the stuff that you need to do to survive in that environment, whilst at any moment you could come under attack from the enemy. So if uh, this part for me, I think if you're heading north-south, you it really comes home. If you're on the trek, it really comes home that this is not... Um, you know, the history pages come alive. This is not an easy feat by even today's standards with the walking, let alone having to fight, um, you know, a godforsaken um, uh, battle in, in, in an inhospitable place. So, yeah, it really brings it home to people. So what's next after Brigade Hill? Well, we're not quite to Brigade Hill. We're, we're coming up the side of it and um, we're... Uh, when you reach the, the, the actual saddle or the summit, if you will, um, there's one last push up to a grassy knoll. I call it the grassy knoll. And um, when you get up on the top of it, uh, you, there's a plaque and you're looking out. You're able to see on the other side. You're actually able to see towards where we're going. Uh, it's a long way in the distance, but you get, again, to put your trek in perspective because this is really the first time that you uh, have been able to stand in a central point and be able to look back from where you came and to where you're going. And um, uh, on top of the on top of Brigade Hill now, there is a hut, a mess hut. There is a plaque that was put in in, in the early 90s. There, there's uh, an area, a cleared area, um, and there's also you know toilets and running water. You can actually hear this pipe of water um, getting you know closer and closer as you climb up that knoll. And um, you, you, once you're on top of it, as I said, everything starts to become in perspective. And what we're going to do is we have a service. We have a service, uh, little services along the way, but in particular being Brigade Hill uh, as a major feature, that's what we do. And we, we get the um, Papuan guys that are with us, the New Guinea guys with us, they, they, they all join and we go around that plaque with this magnificent vista behind us and we read a few poems, read a few um, accounts of what happened and um, and we you know, re- recite the ode and have a minute's silence. And it is a very, very sombre occasion uh, on par with the, the occasion we would have had it, um, previously at this Arava Memorial. I can imagine, mate. Um, what uh, And what happens after we, we finish there and, and, and move on? So after we have a look around at, um, at Brigade Hill, uh, we, and we talk about those units that fought there. Uh, and I must just mention one of the things that stand out, of course, is the bayonet charge at the saddle. Uh, there were men, uh, men like Brenton Langridge, um, men like Charlie McCullum, who had been a hero at Isarava. These are guys who pretty much take off their dog tags, hand their pay books over. Uh, they are, because uh, it doesn't go well. If you haven't guessed by now, it doesn't go well for the Australians. And after... Um, uh, a couple of days in early September, these guys get pushed off. The Australians get pushed off this feature, uh, which is, well, Brigadier Potts would later be dismissed from his command. Um, probably, you know, it was undeserved, uh, uh, but nonetheless, the Japanese did uh, manage to go past the halfway mark. And um, the, and, and, and you can't help but uh, relay these stories of, of um, Charlie McCullum, Brenton Language, taking off their pay books, handing over their dog tags, knowing that they had to fight... Um, an action uh, to stop the Japanese, uh, um, even only momentarily, so that the wounded, so the rest of uh, Potts's 21st Brigade could make their escape. In fact, Bert Kienzel, now you know, known as the architect of Kikoda, had to blaze another trek, the second 27th that we spoke about um, earlier on. They um, they actually get cut off and get lost. They're known as the Lost Battalion. I think it's two weeks they're lost out in the bush, paralleling other tracks, trying to make their way back to the Australian lines. But men literally sacrifice themselves in order to allow for their their mates to to escape. In effect, yeah. So uh, it's you know moving stuff. And after we do all that at Brigade Hill, we've got a big drop down to um, another river. Um, I prefer going down this way of Brigade Hill than coming up it, uh, but it is steep, it's muddy, it's slippery, and it goes on forever. Uh, and everyone, whether you're going up it or down it, have a sigh of relief when you get to the bottom. And when we finally get to the bottom, um, and I should say along the way, you can see a lookout that looks out to Minari, which is the, the next village that we're going to, and you can see the airstrip. Uh, obviously, there's big open areas. And we cross the creek at the bottom, and then um, just when we think the climbing... <laughs> Is, uh, is is behind us, you, you get a bit of a wake-up call because you've got a half an hour or so climb up into the village onto the airstrip and um, 
and it's a nice open area. By now, you know, we've left a fogey. Uh, this has taken most of the morning. Had morning tea either on Brigade Hill or coming down off the side of it, and we're um, punching on up through uh, Minari Village, which is a big village. It's a similar size to, I guess, to a fogey, and it's an opportunity for, you know, the kids will come out again. It's an opportunity to turn around and, and, and look back at um, Brigade Hill and realise how big a feature it is. It's also an opportunity to um, stand... Um, relatively in the same spot where the uh, Damien Parra footage from Kokoda Frontline was taken, where uh, Lieutenant Colonel, Colonel Ralph Honor of the 39th Battalion famously addresses his men. That all happens in this in this area. And, um, yeah, after after we, we do that, we've got another um, <laughs> mountain, of course, to climb up through Always. a gap. <laughs> Always, yes, up in the gap. And we're, uh, by now we're starting, people will start to think, well, is lunch ever going to happen? But we've got another climb up and, um, you know, we keep putting one foot in front of the other, Matt. You mentioned these climbs, David, and coming up and down the hills and up uphill and down dale, as we would say. Um, I've heard people who've done the trek, I've obviously never done Kokoda myself, but I've heard people who've done the trek say some people have said the going down is in some ways harder than the going up. Where do you, where do you stand on that, uh, on that discussion? I, uh, tend to agree. Um, you know, you're, you obviously working really hard when you're climbing up the hills and you, um, you know, your heart rates up and you're puffing and panting. But when you go down, yeah, you're right. A lot of people say that it's even harder, especially on the knees. Uh, especially stopping yourself from uh, falling over because it is in places really, really steep. And if you take one um, one wrong move with your feet, down you go on your bum. And uh, I think I said it in one of the other podcasts, there's never a time I've walked the track where I haven't gone on, on the backside. It's, it's going to happen. But in particular, your shins, your knees, your, your toes into the front of your boots as you're going down the hills, after a while it is monotonous and you would almost wish to be climbing back up the hill, puffing and panting. <laughs> You've got to keep pick those, the lesser um, of two evils. <laughs> keep those toenails short is the uh, the advice that I've heard as well, if you want them to remain attached to your feet. Yes, uh, there are many a toenail has been uh, lost, uh, turns black and falls off if you don't look after your feet and your shoes or boots rather aren't properly fitting. So, yeah, we've got um, – we've when we leave the village of Minari, we've got a climb. It's not a huge climb and it comes up to a grassy gap in the top, which you, we would have already pointed out to everybody when we were coming down Brigade Hill. And in this area that we're in now, we're heading – we've got to get off that off that um, feature and we and make our way down into what can be an unpleasant area. Um, I could only imagine what it would have been like during the war, but it's a it's swamp, stagnant water. Um, you know, lots of bugs and and and, and mozzies and stuff around, and um, you know you want to keep moving. And uh, it smells, and it's and if it's depending on the month of the year and how much rain it is, you'll up over your ankles in mud. It, it conjures up those images that we think of Kokoda with men in mud. In fact, earlier this year, um, uh, when I went up there without trekkers, we were up to our waistline in, in some of it because the bridges hadn't been, they've been repaired now, but they hadn't been repaired at the time. But, it, it, you know, it, it's an un, this part is unpleasant to a certain degree, and I always um, like the fact that we can... Um, you know, it's motivation to get yourself out of it and, of course, get up onto the next big mountain, which is the Magooley Range. So um, We've talked about this, David, in previous episodes, is that I don't want to be flippant and say we can understand what the men went through because, of course, of course, we can't get anywhere near understanding what they went through in 1942. But these things you're describing, to me, typify why we walk the ground, why we visit battlefields. When we talk about even silly things like keep your toenails trimmed, the, the effect that this trek is going to have on your feet, swamps, the smells of the jungle, you know, the unpleasantness of the swamp and the water and the cloying mud. This is why we do it, isn't it, mate? We, we, you can read. I've, I've got a whole bookshelf full of books about the Kokoda campaign. I, I can't tell you what it smells like to have to go through that swamp or the pain of losing a toenail or the desperation for a climb or a descent to end. And, and this is why... We get out, not even just in these battlefields where it's an extreme physical challenge like Kokoda, but even walking, you know, across a beautiful French, you know, field to, to follow in the footsteps of the soldiers on the Somme or, or through a, you know, jungle track in Vietnam. They, they, this is the reason we get out there and this is the stuff you can't learn from the history books. Indeed. And um, it really, for me, it puts it in perspective. Now, it's easy for me to sit here and talk about Kokoda because it's my subject. Obviously, done the track 
many times, read everything there is uh, uh, been written on it. But uh, you're right, even when I go to other battlefields, which I'm not as familiar with, because I may have only been there once or twice, or I'm always excited when I go to a battlefield that I've never gone to before, and it is because I want to walk across the ground. I want to see what the dominating features are. And, you know, you gave the example of when you're on the Western Front, unlike Kokoda, obviously Kokoda, you've got these big mountains and, you, and, and you've got these points. Sometimes, you know, I think of Fromel, the Sugarloaf, those sorts of things, you know, it's not as distinct, but nonetheless it is there. And um, I'm always reminded uh, of the words of um, uh, Ted Kennedy, see, who said, you know, the biggest battle in your life is a battle that you're in. And these parts of the ground mattered to the men who were fighting there, um, whether it's a huge big mountain or just a simple, uh, you know, indentation in the ground at the time in that moment, it really meant something. And they'll never forget that. And often, more often than not, you know, especially only 80 years or 100 years after the battle, these things are still here. Sometimes, yeah, you've got to look for them. But you're right. That's something that the history book can't, um, you know, g give you the perfect picture in your mind. You have to be out there on the ground and you have to experience it and then overlay your own experience to say, well, yeah, look, I understand now. The enemy was coming from over here and this particular spot meant something. In where we are now on the track in the swamp, it would have been awful for the men, uh, especially when you've got the Japanese um, army chasing you and you have to hightail it. And if we put ourselves now down off the other side of that gap, you can look over to the village of Nunaru on the side. We've, we've ducked down. We usually have lunch at a creek, a nice freshwater stream, which is on the on the, um, on the uh, edge of, of the swamp where we're coming through. We have lunch there because it's the last good... good um, good uh, water source and then we head off in back into the jungle um, can't really see too much of the mountains now because you've got lots of canopy and you're going to be in 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 the swamp area and you must think to yourself how would it have been trying to get men across there and I mentioned earlier about the second 27th um, who paralleled these tracks and uh, I always uh, if I think of it I, you know I, I usually do I have, have some milk arrowroot biscuits and some um, uh, dried apricots, which I give to the trekkers, and I tell the story of, uh, of the adjutant of the second twenty seventh, a guy named Harry Katakar, who um, was with those withdrawing um, South Australian uh, officer with, with his men, with uh, trying to get back to the Australian lines. The Japanese on their tail, having to take an alternate route to escape, basically. And um, he was smart enough to look up in the treetops and see where the trees had, had the foliage at the top had burst. And if we remember about the supplies being dropped at Myola in this swamp area, you know, in a plane, it's not really that far. It's only a matter of minutes. Um, he realised that some of the supplies that were dropped would have gone off target and he managed to find a... Um, you know, uh, and you imagine the relief that it would have been for them, okay, a milk arrowroot biscuits and dried apricots, but he's found um, some supplies that have gone astray. Uh, but imagine that. It would have meant the world to those guys. And, um, you know, before we head off into the swamp, I usually give people a dried apricot and a milk arrowroot biscuit to, to remind them of the of the plight of the second 27th and Harry Katakar. Small comforts, mate. I'm sure they make a big difference. But the other thing your description does for me is it reminds me of the constants that apply through all wars and across all battlefields. You know, so obviously in Kokoda, it's fairly obvious when we're talking about the high ground and the importance of dominating the high ground. But but that's a constant wherever you are. If you've been Waterloo in you know the 19th century, if you'd been on the Somme in 1916, if you'd been in the fields of Flanders in 1917, or scaling the heights of Gallipoli in 1915, these things would all apply and whoever controls the high ground from an infantry perspective, at least, controls the battlefield. So fairly obvious in a place like Kokoda where you've got these mountains towering over you, but it's a, it's a constant uh, throughout warfare, throughout time. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honouring highly requested new colours for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, 
all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Indeed. And uh, on that note, we are <clears throat> moving through the swamp. We've got a, a big, um, we're still, we've got a huge mountain range about to, which I'll get to in a moment that we have to, to walk. But um, there's, a, there's another river, uh, the Brown River, uh, named i don't know if you can guess why matt but it's named because of the color that it was um and it's always it, it's always a challenging crossing because the bridge usually consists of a felled tree like and i mean a big tree or um sometimes our, our guides or whoever the guides with you put up a rope line and you have to jump in um and hang on to the rope line and ferry yourself across while the, the bags and all the all the equipment get across and um there is a, a quite a uh, if, if you anybody even googled Kokoda Track Brown River, you'd actually see uh, a log with Australian soldiers crossing it, um, near, relatively near to to the spot. It does change a little bit, but it's um, it's time for people to cool off and have a little bit of a swim, depending on 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 the conditions and and the weather that we've got at the time. And then you start really getting into the sludgy. Uh, muck i mean there's stuff there like quicksand it was only in march this year where i uh, jumped in where the bridge had run out and i ended up to my waist and uh, you could feel the other bridge under your feet that's not there now they've repaired the bridge thankfully but um yeah you've got mozzies in your ears they, they, they sound like you know airplanes almost and you've got um these berries that just uh i mean these fruit things I don't, they're not edible but they come off whatever the tree is they drop and all throughout the, the jungle they're littering the jungle floor and you can just hear them in the distance all of a sudden the the, the, the mozzie sound will be broken by this all, almighty thump as these things fall onto the um onto the forest floor but um you've got all sounds truly hard- awful david i'm sure it's pretty magical <laughs> but it sounds truly horrific the way it you're is, describing it yeah i know and it but it is it is magical because thankfully the swamp is usually uh you know done during the day so you in the middle of the day as i said we've just had lunch and it's flat i mean let's give it some some credit it's flat and you do get a bit of a break of your knees wobbling knees going down or you're puffing and panting going 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 up but eventually after a couple of hours or so going we we break through uh from the swamp and we're on the side of the mighty Magooli range and this range is is mighty it is a massive feature i've crossed it a couple of times in one hit but it's um uh it's uh yeah it is by anyone and so in fact one of the kokoda guidebooks talks about nine false peaks um I don't know if it's I just can't count or I haven't got the mental capacity when I'm climbing to count because it feels more like 18 or 20 false peaks, um, <laughs> which is a common occurrence of Kokoda. And, I, you know, and it would have been, again, you could lay the, relay this experience to the soldiers in 1942. You know, you think you're at the top. You think, oh, I can see the blue sky. Yeah, I'm, you know, get up the top of this and I'm, I'm there, you know, and um, you do and you get there and it flattens out a little bit. <laughs> then you're looking back up at another patch of blue sky i've got another one to go and this just this repetitive goes on and on and on and um you know it 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 does take its toll mentally more than physically because you're setting yourself up with false expectations oh i'm almost there oh no i'm not another one to go in the end you just give up (laughs) counting them (laughs) 
<laughs> I uh, I hate to think what it's like after the mosquitoes and after the river crossings and the mud and the slush and the and the swamp and the swamp and uh, facing false peak after false peak. It's um, I'm sure there's people listening to this who are really looking forward to uh, doing Kokoda. I'm delighting in the fact that I haven't had to do it so far. I'm sure it will be on the agenda in the future. But uh, so we we push on as you know as Winston Churchill said, when you're going through hell, keep going. So we push on. What, are we, what next horrific geographic feature do we encounter, Dave? Well, the monotony is broken up by the village of Nunaru. Uh, Nauru was down the bottom in the swamp area, um, you know, existed there for, who knows, a long period of time, well before the war. And then um, it was decided that the village decided, hey, it might be a good idea to move out of the swamp area and come up on the side of the hill. It's got this wonderful red clay and um, there's some wonderful contemporary photographs of uh, looking back the opposite direction that we're going with the, with the red clay, so much so that the red clay stands out the village square because, you know, the village is clear, clear areas, So, but it's this... Um, like a fogey was really almost volcanic in the sense it was black sandy type soil, whereas this is this red, rich red clay. Almost looks almost outback Australia without the, you know, if you forgot about the jungle around you, but you can see it. It stands out. Back where we, before lunch, we would have um, come down uh, to a lookout and you can see it in the distance. So now we're out of the swamp. We've climbed up there. There's a church there. There's villages. It almost is uh, like a, dare I say, a western. Uh, earlier this year when I went in, the village had been unoccupied people hadn't had funds from the trekking industry so they went off to do gold mining the town had moved and uh temporarily the people had, had unoccupied but they locked their their huts and that up and it almost was like walking down the main street out of a western you know with the dirt dirt patch and, and in this case red clay so that that's the next thing you see but after that we leave that behind us and we have to go continue on um up through the i call them the mighty magoolies because they are literally uh never end and uh, you keep getting um, uh, again those false peaks and eventually you come up uh, to this wonderful opening on the top of it and uh, it's covered by uh, these spider webs that catch the the dew and catch the, the rain and whatever and if by the by this time we're there it will be uh, still quite um, you know sunny and that sort of reflects on it and I mean again you won't see too many spiders but you see their webs um, and you know this is what soldiers would have seen, and I can't—you can't help but finding a little bit of beauty in, in 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 those things. And I'm sure the soldiers in '42 would have would have seen it as well. So after we do that, coming back to your point about going downhill, we've got a huge climb down off the Magoolies once you get to the top of them, and you can hear in the distance for a long time as you're walking along, and it gets louder and louder, which is the sound of water and a creek. That is Offy Creek, and eventually, once you get down off the Magoolie, and I'm, I don't want to fast forward over too much because it really is a mighty challenge. And it's littered, by the way, either side with um, uh, weapons pits, so you can watch out like we did back in the earlier podcast when we talked about getting out of the area from Eura Creek Temperance Crossing. You'll start to notice um, weapons pits left and right of the track, and you know you're sort of on on par with what the wartime track would have been. And when you finally get down to the uh, bottom of the Mughalis, there's a bend in the in this creek, the creek that was in the you know, that you could hear in the distance at Offie Creek, and that is. Um, there's this big rock there on, on the side that we're on at the moment as we cross it. And, um, you know, wartime photos show men crossing, soldiers, Australian soldiers crossing in the same sp- spot. In fact, when you do cross it, you, there's a little guest house just up on the other side of the, of the hill as you, you climb out. And we're, we're, we're at the back now heading towards Irabaya Ridge. But that was the site of an Australian ambush um, uh, famously done where, uh, you know, Australian soldiers threw bully beef can- tins into the, um, into the, uh, into the Offie Creek and they floated down. They waited for, you know, one of the Japanese to come down and get them. And then when more came down, they, they, um, they ambushed them from up on this high point. Remember at this stage, the Australians are still in the fighting withdrawal. They're still trying to make their way back and they end up doing that. They go to where we're going for our night stay and that's, um, um, to the Irabaya area. We're, we're on our way now to Irabaya village and we've still got some climbing to do, Matt. We've come out of the creek. We've made our way up the top. Um, it's, there's gum trees, believe it or not, there is gum trees uh, growing in this area. We start to see quite a few of those as we go uh, from this area on and kunai um, grass. Uh, there will actually be quite hot and dry in parts depending on the season. But yeah, big climbs. More false peaks, not as many as the Magoolie, and sh- steeper in places, but sh- but shorter. 
And um, of course, when we get into the um, um, Irabaya area, this is a time now where the Australians start to Brigadier Potts's 21st Brigade is coming off the track, uh, the 39th and 53rd from the 30th Brigade being relieved, and we're going to have more uh, new new Australian brigades come and, and and start fighting the Japanese, and we start to get to the point where things aren't not quite where we are on the track just yet, but they're going to turn. Um, Turn, turn the tables for the Australians before they start pushing them back. And in particular, I want to mention um, the 25th Brigade under the command of um, Brigadier Ken Ether. Uh, they get a new um, fresh Australian troops in for the, as a whole brigade. In fact, they're bigger than brigade because they have the 3rd Militia Battalion attached to them. And they are now poised to take the fight to the Japanese, although the Japanese are still coming. They're coming up all through this area that we're, we're walking along at the moment, heading to uh, Irabaya Ridge. It's exciting stuff, David. It's, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not sure which one I'm more fascinated by, the current trials and tribulations of walking across the track or the the knowledge that I'm surrounded by so much history. It's just a, it's just an incredible uh, part of the track. Is, is this part of the track that you think, is is richer in history than other parts or or is there a significant part of the track that really stands out to you in that regard this area here i mean we've, we've mentioned a lot of the places that, you know isarava of course kokoda and daniki those early battles and we've just you know we were talking earlier about brigade hill but in this area it, it changes a couple of things uh what happens is that you you start to get a sense that the that the jungle has changed you know that the ground is starting to change uh, so it physically looks different because obviously we're cutting across the Owen Stanleys. It, it changes in parts. So it's significantly different, I think. By the time you get there, you actually stop and take a, a pause for a moment and go, okay, yeah, look, there are gum trees. The, the landscape is a bit different here. Um, but also from the historical point of view, you know, you, you've got um, a whole chapter, if you will, of the of the involvement of Brigadier Potts's 21st Brigade's uh, involvement to being relieved by these um, you know, fresh Australian, a whole fresh Australian brigade. Um, and um, in fact, the whole Kokoda campaign, as we know, is dominated by high ground, dominated by ridges. And this is a place where now you realise, hey, we've just come, you know, three quarters or or more over the Kokoda track. The Japanese have been pursuing the Australians after two major battles. Yes, it's running, I guess, in their favour, but their supply line is dragged well out all the way from Kokoda back to the northern beachheads. It's really um, dragged its way. And sure, they 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 um, you know get some Australian supplies, but it's not not a huge amount. Their, their supply line is coming all the way from the north coast of Papua. They're, they're you know there's some two hundred odd kilometres really away from there their main uh, base at Girawa uh, down in the northern beach. It's Popendetta, where we would have flown in on, on the plane when we started our journey. And, yeah, landscape changes, the history changes, and it starts, you as a trekker start to feel that you're getting closer, you're getting on top of walking the track, and it's only a couple of nights now before you're back in the comforts of the hotel. So in your mind, the emotion, the history overlap with your walking and your own fatigue, it starts, I think, to, to gel. And I must mention, because you asked me, Matt, you know, about the history being more relevant in this area. Well, they're at Irabaya Ridge when we, we get to the ridge line itself before we drop down into the village. There is a, um, I think it's one of the best kept secrets. People get tired and they keep walking, but it's it's relatively, you don't have to do a big climb to go and see it. And what I'm getting at is that you can duck off to the side. There's this wonderful big tree, which must have been there during the war, just before you drop down the track. We're on this uh, flat area, if you will. Everyone always has a, has a rest there, and you can duck off to, down to the right where we're going, so to our right in the direction we're heading, and you can walk along part of the ridge line, and it is amazing. It is, okay, there's not concrete, uh, pillboxes and that to see on Kokoda but and you see the odd one or two weapons pits that we mentioned either side of the track but in this area there's a high concentration of what uh, Japanese um, trench systems and they were literally um, into trenches around you know you always distinguish the Japanese and been sort of a round shape as paired to, paired to the rectangular shape of the Australians but in this area you have this interlocking system of trenches and foxholes that the Japanese had dug into and um, you know you recall stories where the Japanese as I said their supply line was so stretched that you know men were in these foxholes scratching around for single grains of rice I mean it was a desperate desperate situation now for the Japanese. 
just horrific. And as we've said all along, we should never forget the the hardships the Japanese went through as well, not just out of human compassion, but also to paint a fuller picture of the history. We don't do ourselves any favours by simply thinking of the Japanese as this two-dimensional enemy, sort of a shadow in the in the background. Uh, they were men as well. They had to go through the same hardships in terms of food and supply and, and all these things that affected army. So that paints a picture not just, as I said, from a human aspect, but also from a logistics aspect of, of why campaigns succeed and fail. So probably a very good spot to do that. Um, pushing on, what are we coming up to next? Well, yeah, so the, as a, we're going to drop down for our night stay at Irabaiwa Village, which is just below that ridgeline. I should mention here, because I had mentioned I'd introduced uh, Ken Ether's 25 uh, Brigade. So he has three infantry um, battalions, plus he has a militia battalion attached to him. But in this spot here, he literally gets on the phone uh, because he knows that it's un, that the position of Irabaiwa is untenable for several reasons, but mainly... He's he's obviously only come up from from Owa's Corner, so the opposite way that we're going, and he's come Owa's Corner, Imita Ridge, and then Irabaya Ridge, and he thinks I can't defend Irabaya Ridge, but I can defend Imita, and he gets on the phone to to his higher command and asks, um, you know, permission to um, uh, to withdraw, and uh, he gets it. But his higher says to him, look, you know, you, you're not going to withdraw any further. You're going to have to take a stand and if necessary, die there. And so you've got the Japanese digging in. You've got the Australians withdrawing back to the other ridge line, and we're going to drop down almost uh, in the halfway mark, if you will, to um, to stop and have our camp, our night's camp in Irabaya. And the village itself, again, nice, wonderful open space, and you can look, um, you can't see Port Moresby, you can look back towards Port Moresby, and the sun sets there uh, in the evening, um, on the grass, this big open grass field. There's a lovely memorial, relatively new, I guess, in the history of trekking on Kokoda, this wonderful memorial that you can gather around. It's got like this 3D um, uh, maps of the, of the Kokoda track with all the points, including where we are, and you can um, enjoy um, not only rest, but this wonderful, the sky does, you know, paints these all these different colours and that that come up. It's, it's absolutely stunning. Um yeah, it's, it's a highlight for me of the trip, to be honest with you. Well, we're getting close to the uh, the end of our of our adventure, David. What uh, What's still in front of us well, after this overnight camp? Lovely overnight camp. Um, but just when we thought that the uh, <laughs> we can taste the uh, taste uh, hamburger and chips back at the hotel, not quite. We've still got one night on the on the track, and um, where we're going now is we we haven't got much of a walk to to, to drop off the Irabaya side of the uh, of the ridge, but then we hit um, uh, a, a creek or several creeks, uh, one big one in particular. And again, like the book said, that there was nine false peaks of um, you know of coming up Magooli. It gives a figure on how many times you cross the the same creek, but it just seems to go on and on and on. And actually, in my mind, I can recall the last time I did it when we got unusual. Usually, the rain comes in the uh, afternoon, but this day it started quite earlier in the morning and um, it just absolutely hammered down rain so you're completely soaking wet this area I say to people there's no taking it's not like the brown river that we've just gone through the day before where you can take your shoes off and wade across if you took your shoes off every time you had to cross this, this creek as you the track weaves its way and snakes its way through uh, you'd never get anywhere and it's dangerous actually to take your boots off because uh, you need the grip on the end of your, on the end of your shoes. So people woke up in the morning, nice dry socks. They might have been saving a pair, but no, uh, they're going to get wet pretty quick. So jump jump into the the creek, both boots on, I say, and just keep walking. And we do this um, for quite some time. Um, and uh, if you're lucky, you haven't got the rain, but you'll have the you'll be wet. Uh, from your feet up to your knees and then you'll be wet if it, if it rains and there's canopy and you're down. It's quite dark. Even in the day, it gets dark in some of these spots. And you're in no man's land because the area between Irabaiwa and Imita during the war, both sides did send out uh, patrols to gather information, if you will. The Japanese had other things going on in their in, in their command structure. They were now at the end of their tether, I guess. They had, as I said, stretched themselves out, but the Australians were up uh, on Imita Ridge. Um, and they were, um, you know, sending patrols out into into this, what I call it, no man's land, because you've got both sides having a face off on the, where we just slept at Irabaya and where we're heading. And when you finally get through all these snake snaking the river, 
and the creeks and that, and you get through, uh, you start to get this volcanic style rocks where it's all little rocks inside a big rock. You can see it, it's very distinct. Again, the landscape changes, but then you're in the shadow of Imina Ridge. And it, for me, Matt, I can tell you now is my Achilles heel. I don't like it. I don't like climbing up it from this side. <laughs> Tell us why, David. I mean, you've you've had innumerable peaks that have caused you problems. What's special about this one? I think it's. I liken it to if you get a puppy, uh, you you show the puppy early on uh, that you can outrun it, and even though when it grows into a fully grown up dog, and it can outrun you in its mind, it still thinks that you can outrun it. And what what happened for me once is that I'd actually crossed the. Uh, this is many years ago now in the wet season. I think it was the second of January. I set off in going the same direction we're going, and I crossed. Uh, the Maguli Range, the swamp, the Maguli Range, and um, Irabaiwa and Imina all in one day. And I remember it was just, and it rained the whole time. And Imina being the last um, uh, big hill of that of that particular trek for me, it just went on and on and on because it is steep. It's not as long as others, but it just and it twists and turns. And just when you think you get to the top, then it gives you another bit. And for me, like. Being that young puppy, I just—it's one place that always just says, "Hang on, you think you—you you think you're something special? Think you can walk the Kokoda track? Well, think again." <laughs> and um, um, yeah, it just—I um, mean, it's good to be uh, out of the creeks, snaking the creeks, and being wet. But it is literally um, there is a, a nice water uh, point to pick up water at the base of it, and you are just li- looking up at a sheer wall to begin with, and then it twists off to the right. And it twists again and it goes, it just goes, it seems to go on forever. It's actually not as big as Brigade Hill if you're coming up, especially going the opposite direction we're going. But it is just, I think it just emerges, Matt, at the wrong, it's the right place, but at the wrong time. <laughs> I'm just trying to imagine being a Japanese private, lugging mortar shells and ammo belts and my own rifle and then looking up at this, uh, this, this huge... Uh, geographic feature in front of me. Do we have many accounts from the Japanese perspective of the hardships of of climbing these hills and dealing with the jungle? There isn't a lot, I guess, that's made it into, um, dare I say, popular history or the Kokoda books. There is some, there are certainly some uh, well-written accounts um, which have delved into the Japanese records and give accounts for it. But there is certainly a a system there where... uh, uh, of of us when we write the history, you know, you hear it. You know, the history is written by the victors, but there is a couple of good books out um, that I, you know, I suggest that if people want to seek them out um, to go and have a look at the um, have a look at the uh, at at the Japanese side of it. And back to what I said before, where the Japanese were dug in on the um, on the on their furthest extent, which is the Irabai Ridge, where they talk about you know uh, scratching for single grains of rice, rice uh, being you know completely uh, di- uh, you know dysentery, uh, m- malaria, you know starving, hungry, miserable, all that sort of stuff, and it was a tough. And their army, I guess, for all accounts, with the discipline was was. was uh, I'm not saying we weren't disciplined, but certainly the Japanese. Uh, by all accounts that I've read, it was if you were a private soldier, you would um, you would certainly be uh, let let us say have different standards of discipline than ours, or the way, or rather the way it would be enforced. So um, yeah, I mean I can't help now but to think about um, how hard it would have been at this stage of the campaign for the Japanese soldier. Absolutely, we're nearly at the end. Our hardy band of trekkers has nearly done it. What do we still have to challenge to challenge ourselves before we get there? Well, we're up in Imida, and usually uh, it's the afternoon. And if you haven't got rain, of course it's going to rain. It gets quite muddy. There's a there's like an open saddle on top of Imida, and there's a, a again a, a fairly recent recent plaque that's been put up. There's quite a quite an impressive plaque which talks about um, the, um, uh, the the campaign at this stage. Uh, whether you're going the opposite direction, going the way we're drink, going, but everyone has a, you know, you've climbed Imeter, we've had a drink of water, and we drop down. And if it's raining, which in, undoubtedly, let's say it is raining because it will be raining, you hit mud and you're sliding down, and it goes, it goes on for a bit, going off the other end of it, and it's not as steep um, to begin with, and it, and you, you you almost have to climb up a little bit to go down. I know that's a hard concept to grasp, but you're actually climbing up to go down, and uh, finally, when you get through to the bottom of Imeter and this is the usually the um, the last campsite um, 
on the track itself before going home the next day, you get to a place called Goodwater. And no prizes for guessing why it's called Goodwater. It's got a lovely um, water supply there. There's a place you can have a swim. It's cleared and open. Uh, and um, it's you know there's a nice grass area there, and it's a good opportunity to obviously have a rest because you're on your, your second last um, um, day's walking. But um, it's time for reflection, and uh, most uh, groups that I take by the time we get here, uh, the talk changes around the campfire. We're still talking a bit about the history, but we're also reflecting on our own journey, and um, you know, uh, I guess working out how uh, we've coped with. This, this trek, cope with the emotion of what happened, you know, 80 years ago, and also people's uh, own, um, I guess, aspirations of what they're going to do when they're finished. And that wouldn't have been that unlike what Australian soldiers or the human, um, you know, spirit goes through when you're, you're doing something hard and you're thinking about greener, greener pastures, shall we say. Yeah, I'm certainly not surprised by that, David. What uh, what's left to tackle before we finish the track? So we have we've had our night at Goodwater. Um, we are uh, going across the stream that we would have uh, got our drinking water and, and swam downstream from it. And um, we've we're morale improves because you know in the morning you wake up and you're um, and we know it's going to be the last day. We know there's going to be a a, a bus waiting for us, and um, that's exactly what happens. People start uh, getting, I guess, uh, you know, they've all got niggling little, whether it be a blister on your boot or you've got some chafing from your pack or you're just tired or whatever. Morale sort of lifts, but it's not over yet, and we've got the best part of the morning walking. And eventually, as you pop through, you know, there's you're very, uh, you've got. Uh, a couple of areas where there's um, where there were supply dumps, but you're going to be met by the last major feature, um, other than Noah's Corner, and that is the Goldie River. And there's no bridges over the Goldie River. Um, we jump in and we wade uh, up to our waists and cross this across the stream. And you, you, know, the, you start to get also get a sense of all the, the porters that are with us. They get excited because they know they're heading off to the, the Silver City, the Port Moresby, and you'll often see the boys will start, uh, you know, getting their gear out and start washing it and doing all, doing all, those, um, um, all those sorts of things. And they'll have, um, they'll have a, uh, a, a, a clean-up, I guess, and we'll put our boots back on because you do take your boots off in this spot. And we've got one last hill to climb. And different to Imida because, um, you know, you've got a bit of morale, you know it's going to go, but I think people get themselves into a false expectation that it's already over and uh, it's not and it's it's a 45 minute to an hour climb and it becomes really open and it's quite sunny on the Moresby end and you get to a point where you can see the archways which is similar to the in design to the archways that we would have stood under and had our photo taken right back at the start of the journey at Kokoda and you know, you'll start to be climbing up this zigzag track and the sun is beating down. You can see this archway. You know it's there. You've got this, you know, sense that I want to complete it. But, of course, you're only as good as what you can go up the hill. You're puffing and panning and you're stopping. Oh, it's so close. It's so close. And then eventually you'll start to hear some of the local people. They might they might sing out, Oro, 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 which is their, their, one of their welcomes. And then you get to the archways and you um, there's there's patch of green grass there's a, some interpretive panels it's quite open there and uh, there's a 25 pounder actually under a um under a a, a, a sort of a, a shed that they've built there and you get there and there's just relief and you can hear instead of those fruits from that i was talking about dropping in from the top of the canopy down the sound you can hear is the dropping of people's packs because they just <laughs> off they go and you're done and you're finished and there is just such a i guess a sense of accomplishment which um you know, it's even now I'm in my head. I'm picturing being there, and although I've done it dozens and dozens of times, if you've done it for the first time, that sense of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, is something at a moment in time that is hard to repeat. It's just a, a glorious feeling, I guess. Just extraordinary, David. I can I can imagine the sense of camaraderie and uh, the sense of accomplishment that that that. that that comes over you at that moment when you've completed the track. I think it would be uh, disbelief would also be part of the experience. But uh, just to finish up, we jump on the bus. We're heading back to Port Moresby. We're going to make one last very important stop at Bamana War Cemetery. 
tell us a little bit about yeah, that. We, we probably are. won't have time to go into every grave that we would visit when we're there, but just give us an overview of, of that cemetery and why it's so significant. Yeah, so we, we, we get on the bus and we make our way from Owens Corner. I should point out that we go past McDonald's Corner as well, which for a lot of the units, um, that was a significant spot because that was their starting, their step-off point before Owens Corner um, was developed during the war. But, yeah, you're right. We we've, we go through Segaria and we drop down. We've got a big, long, windy drive down heading towards Port Moresby and, you, and we call into Pomana. And, and when you said before, Matt, about that sense of accomplishment, and it is, and it, and it is rightly deserved by, by Australians crossing, going under that archway, and they should be proud of themselves and they have that sense of it. And I think everyone at this stage, we're all on a high. We know we're going back. We're no more walking back to the hotel. But when you get to Bamana, you've got to understand, you know, Port Moresby in places, very underdeveloped. Um, you start to drive into the gates and the and the, the, the driveway that comes in now um, is just you know, reveals. It's like this long winding driveway to, a, to that you'd see in a big manor house or something. But when you come around the, this winding corner at Bamana, you're just, um, you know, uh, faced with this scene of Commonwealth war graves. And if anybody listening has been to um, the Western Front, man, and I know you have many, you know, many cemeteries on the Western Front. You see those white stone head, headstones, I should say. Uh, that's what you see at Bamana. And, um, and look, there is um, lots of Australians and, and um, male and female. And uh, you have, um, you've got, um, uh, you've got uh, not just people that were killed in the Kokoda campaign. You've got Northern Beaches as well. There's only three cemeteries in Papua New Guinea. There's one in Lai, one up in Rabaul, and the big one here is in Bamana. And, um, you know, we all go, always go through it up to the rotunda at the top where the names of those that have no known grave uh, are written. Uh, men like Sam Templeton that I mentioned before or, um, you know, those that have, and they may very well be buried in Bamana because there's lots of headstones that say known unto God. And, of course, they may be in there, but we're not sure. They haven't been identified, but their name is on rotunda. They may not even be in, in um, Bamana at all. There's, uh, there's two uh, grave headstones there which uh, will have the Victoria Cross on it. One is Jack French from the Milne Bay campaign and of course Bruce Kingsbury from Isarava that we would have walked through. But some of the, and you've got the uh, Manusu brothers buried next to each other which I think we covered in an earlier podcast but one of the graves in particular which I must mention which I take especially school groups we go there. There is a grave to a guy named Joe Rawkin. I know his story is Joe, Joe Rovkin. He changed his name during during the war because he was Jewish. He, you know, he thought he was going to go and fight the Germans, but he ended up in at a 16-year-old on the track. And to my knowledge, he is the youngest person who, Australian soldier that was killed on the Kokoda campaign, uh, and uh, he's buried there. And I take people, you see, clearly see the Star of David on the on the grave, and um, I single him, him, him out um, because of his age, and he's 16. And it puts things in perspective because most people that walk the track uh, over 16. So even if you've got a school group, you know, year 10, year 11, etc., they've already lived longer than Joe. And to stand at his grave and uh, to ponder the the fact uh, that, you know, it could have been you, it could have been your generation and surrounded by all these other graves of men who died um, in the Kokoda campaign, you are, you know, if that doesn't ring at home, um, it is, I can only express this to you, Matt, you've got that jubilation as you went through those archways uh, and then when you get to Bamana you're not walking but the emotion takes over and um, it's very rare I have somebody there that doesn't have uh, salt water welling in their eyes man. Just extraordinary David. Bamana I believe is there's more Australians buried there than any other military cemetery in the world so there's often a uh, debate between Tynecott in Belgium from the First World War and uh, Bamana, but uh, as far as I understand, Bamana has more Australians than any other military cemetery on the planet. So that certainly would bring it home at the end of a, a long trek. And, and what a remarkable way to finish after the physical exertion. I think at times on the track, I assume that the physical challenges outweigh somewhat the history, that you're, you're busy just trying to put one foot in front of another, and the sense of accomplishment, as you say, when you get to the end. But what a remarkable way to put it into perspective to then see those thousands of graves of the of the blokes that uh, that did exactly what you've just done, except uh, never came home. Just what a remarkable part of the world, remarkable journey. Um, you must never tire of it, David. I don't. Uh, and if the body tires, the mind will never tire of it. I, you, you've summed it up well there, Matt. I mean, if you, to have undertaken this 
I think the ultimate Australian pilgrimage for, for several reasons, but obviously one because it is, you know, you have to deprive yourself. You have to really go on a true pilgrimage to be able to uh, feel, touch and, you know, smell the battlefield. But um, and then to go through Bamana and to see the sacrifice that Australian soldiers made for us is just extraordinary. And um, you, 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 I can't tire of it. And every time I go to New Guinea, I learn something, I'll read something new, I'll go and see a different uh, little aspect of it or focus or concentrate on that. And of course, as we said earlier on in this podcast, you know, when you get people who are like school age children, or not, not just school, anyone that's got a genuine wants it to want to know more about it um it brings me alive and the articulation of the history it just it, it does it just I, I i can't express on this podcast how um you know excited i get um you know all of these images coming through my mind as we talk there is just uh, i think uh, uh, if you haven't done it go and do it and if you can't do it as in the physical side of it you can still come and visit um Penja. you can still come and visit Kokoda, you can go to the northern beachheads, you can go to Owa's Corner, and more, most importantly, as you said, Matt, biggest cemetery Australians, you can come and see Bamana. Well, that's very well said, David, and um, if, if you are listening to this and you do want to do the track, don't forget you can do it with David or one of his one of his uh, talented team members, um, and you can book through Matt McLaughlin Battlefield Tours. So uh, David touched on it there, but we have a couple of innovative tours we've put together with David that allow you to fly into Kokoda. Uh, and uh, and do the basically the start and the end of the of the track. Obviously, you don't do the bits in the middle, but you can do the start and the end and see those those key battlefields without having to to trek, which is something relatively new in the uh, in the marketplace. But of course, if you're feeling up for it, do the whole trek. Join David and 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 walk in the footsteps of those Anzacs, and it's a, a remarkable journey. In in spite of my joking around, David, I'm looking forward to getting over there with you and doing it sometime in the in the very near future. Um, and obviously, there'll be a, a number of podcasts about that once we've done it, but. Uh, something I'm looking forward to in the future. But, David, what a remarkable journey, mate. I'm sad it's come to the end after three hours. We've compressed a 10-day journey into three hours, but it's but what a remarkable three hours it's been. Um, I just want to say thank you, mate. Thanks for your your compassion, your enthusiasm, and your ability to bring this to life. It's It's been an extraordinary journey. Thanks, Matt. And uh, if you're looking forward to doing the track, it's not as much as I'm looking forward to pushing you across the track, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I can and yet can't wait. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thanks, Matt. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you could subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.